I think it's safe to say that if you were to just ask a general survey and just walk down the street and say, what kind of religious world do we live in? You're going to get all kinds of different answers. And I think that speaks to what the ultimate answer probably is. And that is we probably live in an age that can best be described as an era of religious confusion. If you just open up the phone book or do a Google search or just drive down the streets, you're going to see all sorts of different names, all sorts of different groups, all sorts of different titles. And, and if you know anything about those particular groups, you're also going to know there's all kinds of different teachings or doctrines. And, we, and anybody who's looking at that, maybe from the outside in, would say, how do you figure all this out? How do you possibly figure all this out? If, if, if this group is saying one thing, and that group is saying another thing, and this group over here is saying something else, and yet all of them are saying, we are Christians, does that really make sense? In a lot of areas of life, that's, we would say that's just nothing more than, than, than lunacy. But for some reason, when it comes to religion, we say, well, that's okay. In fact, some say that's actually a good thing, because you get to do things the way you want to do them. In fact, one person who was in my office this week, and we were just having a regular conversation, even referred to it as Burger King religion. You get to have it your own way. You get to do things the way you want to do them, and in the end, God will be happy with it no matter what. And so that's a good thing, because you get to do things the way you want to do them. Boy, doesn't that one statement say a whole lot more about us than we might want to admit. That I get to do things the way I want to do them, and in the end, God will just have to say, well, I guess that's all right with me too. What's interesting about that is it contradicts something that Jesus himself said when he was here on the earth. Near the end of that most famous sermon, he preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. He very clearly said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And you recall Following that verse, Jesus even said, there are some who on that day, the judgment day, were going to say to him, and I'm paraphrasing here, Lord, didn't we do a lot of religious stuff? In other words, these weren't people who were non-believers. These weren't people who were just living life, but they were saying things or doing things that they thought were honoring to God. They were doing religion their own way. And Jesus said the answer to them is going to be, I never knew you. Because they weren't doing what He had already said. They weren't fully doing the will of His Father in heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 48 though, that we have something that will judge us in the last day. And He did not say, what will judge us in the last day is the way I feel about things. He did not say what will judge us in the last day is what made me the happiest in life. He said, What would judge us in the last day is the words that I have spoken, the words that Jesus has spoken. In other words, there is a standard that we we must follow. Some suggest that who we are, the churches of Christ, are nothing more than one denomination in the midst of an ever-growing sea of other denominations. The number just keeps getting larger. You do a Google search, you look at books and research, and trying to peg down the number of various religions or denominations in our world is basically impossible because of how many different people have splintered off of this group and formed this other group and on and on and on it goes. And they say, well, the Church of Christ is just yet another one in that sea of denominations just continues to grow. But this morning what I want us to consider is very simply this. I want us to try to go back to the original standard of the New Testament. And I want us to consider not just that the Church of Christ is not a denomination, I want us to see that we need to do our best to avoid denominationalism. 
I want us to think about that concept this morning. We're going to talk about what the word actually means in just a moment. But I want to say at the outset, my, my goal this morning is not to run down any particular group. In fact, I'm not going to call any names this morning whatsoever. That's not my goal. My goal was to look at the original. I want us to see what Jesus actually said, what the New Testament actually teaches. And I want us to see, is that concept of denominationalism even there? Obviously, by the title, you can tell I don't believe it is. A very uh, sincere reading would tell us that. But I want us to see what God had in mind for the church from the very beginning. We want to be only what God desires. And to do that, we must go back to the original pattern. But we're not doing this to try to say we're right and quote-unquote they're wrong. That's not the reason we do these things. Instead, we do these things because we want to humbly submit to God. We want to make sure that we are who He would want us to be. And we want every person to have the opportunity to understand that and to know that. Not because we are right, but because God is right. And we want to make sure that we follow Him each and every day. The first observation I want to make this morning, if we want to avoid denominationalism, is this. Just calling the church of Christ a denomination does not make it so. Just calling something by a name doesn't make it that. Just because you say something doesn't make that a concluding uh, thought. As I've said earlier, there are some who are wanting to call the church of Christ, and I'm speaking about some within churches of Christ who are wanting to say, we're just yet another denomination, and that's nothing new. This is not something that's just cropped up in the last two or three or five years. In fact, back in 1973, there was a preacher among churches of Christ who in one of his writings called the church of Christ, quote, one big sick denomination, end of quote. And in that particular writing, was trying to draw people in churches of Christ just to accept that they were one. That we're just one denomination among an ever-growing sea. That was in 1973. This wasn't last week. This is nothing new. But just saying that does not make it so. I want you to turn near the end of the book of Acts. In fact, Acts chapter 28. Because all the way from the very beginning of the foundations of the church, you had people trying to call the church something, but they didn't necessarily make it so. Back in Acts chapter 28, you have some of the Jewish leaders who are trying to say that Christians, that Christianity was nothing more than just another sect among the Jews. You have the Pharisees, for example. You have the Sadducees. And now they said, you've got another sect. We might say the Christianese. Just another group. Acts chapter 28, notice verses 21 and 22. We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Do you see it? It is just a sect, they said. You've got all these different divisions or groups among the Jews, and they're saying, this is just another one. Well, just them saying that, did that make it true? Did that make Christianity just another sect among the Jews? Well, of course not. This was another religion. This was following Jesus Christ, not following the old law. This was following the ways of the New Testament, the New Covenant, not following the ways of the law of Moses or the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. This was an entirely new religion. So just because what they said was what they said, it didn't mean what they said was what it was. Just calling something something doesn't make it that something. How's that for the most confusing sentence you ever heard in your entire life? 
But we live in a time where denominationalism is so ingrained in our mind that I believe some of us are just almost embarrassed to say we're not a denomination. But we are not. Just saying it is does not make it so. The word denominate is one we rarely use. In fact, the only two times I guess we ever use the word denomination is among religion and among money or finances. Denominations of currency. That's about the only time you ever ever hear the two words. But the word denominate literally just means to divide. And so the idea of division is found right in the word. We are not for division. We are for unity. But it's unity found upon what God would have us to do. And so that leads us to our second observation this morning. And that is that Jesus established just one church. And since the word denominate or denomination means to divide, we can safely state that Jesus did not establish a denomination. He established one church. In fact, in the scripture reading we used to open our worship this morning in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus himself said, I will build my church, singular, and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it, singular. Now there are some people out there who are a whole lot smarter than me, a whole lot of them. But there is no person, no language scholar, no anybody who can turn the word church in that statement or the word it in that statement to anything other than a singular word, a singular term. Church is singular and it is singular. There is no way to to make Jesus' words say, I will build my church is, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. He didn't say that. That leaves us then with only two possible conclusions. Either one... Jesus did exactly what He set out to do. He established but one church. Well, the only other option, number two, is He failed. Friends, I'm not willing to state the second one at all. I don't believe Jesus failed. And I don't believe that because of what I read in my New Testament. The book of Ephesians is a wonderful book. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear throughout that book that Jesus did exactly what He had set out to do to establish one church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, And He, that is God, has put all things under His, that is Jesus' feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, singular, which is His body, singular, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. There are just as many bodies, one, as there are churches, one. And here Paul makes those two terms interchangeable, body and church, That's very important because later in this very same book, he would list what we sometimes call those seven ones in Ephesians chapter 4. And among those seven ones is one body. If then the body is the church, and there is but one body, how many churches are there? This is not hard math. This is not difficult logic. There is only one. And if that's not enough for us to grasp the concept, in the very same book, Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, near the end of that chapter, he would compare the church to the husband-wife relationship. Starting at verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5, he would say this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, singular, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in every way, everywhere to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spout or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. And then later in that same chapter, in 32, Paul would say, the mystery is profound, and what I'm saying is this refers to Christ and the church. 
Everything found in that context, starting in verse 23, speaks of a husband for a wife. One Christ for His church. And if that isn't enough for us, Paul would write there in verse 32, what I'm talking about is Christ and His or the church. How many are there? Well, how many Christs are there? I don't think there's anyone in this room this morning who would say there's more than one Christ. If we ever see a news story or see a television show or something that talks about a man being married to more than one wife or a woman being married to more than one husband, it immediately raises a feeling within us thinking, what's wrong with this picture? That's exactly the way it should be. When we hear people talk about there is more than one church. It should cause the exact same feelings to well up within us. Because we so often describe the church as the bride of Christ. He has but one. And since He is the only Christ, and remains so faithful to His only bride, we should seek to do the same on our end of things. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being at the end of the day of Pentecost, for example? Or maybe the next day, Acts chapter 2, as we would say, is over. Peter preached a sermon, 3,000 been baptized. And maybe it's the next day and you're still in the city of Jerusalem. And maybe you weren't there to hear Peter's lesson, but you've been hearing all the stuff go around the city about what all happened the day before. And you walk up to someone and they say, hey, I, I was baptized yesterday. I heard this message from Peter about Jesus Christ. and I became a Christian. And you looked at them and you said, let me ask you a question. Which denomination did you become a part of? They would look at you like you had lost, as my mama said before, you're ever loving. They wouldn't understand the question. Why? They had never heard the term. It didn't exist. They were simply baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, and the Lord added them to His body, the church. They wouldn't have understood the question. And yet, think about how, how commonplace that concept is in our world. We nearly always follow up the question, we meet a Christian, what church do you belong to? And we don't mean what congregation of the Lord's people. It's very sad. It's very sad. It's interesting to me, the New Testament condemns even the very beginning stages of division or denominationalism. The book of 1 Corinthians is written to a group of, of Christians who are dividing over nearly everything, at least arguing over nearly everything. But from the very outset, Paul made it clear in that letter that that was not the intent of Jesus for His church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10, he said this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, or by His authority, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you. What does the word denominate mean? To divide. But that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And the very next question Paul asks is this, is Christ divided? May I change his wording just slightly? Is Christ denominated? And then he goes on to ask, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see, these Christians were not saying, I'm a Peterite or a Cephasite, or I'm an Apollosite. But they were saying, I'm going to follow that personality. Some following the personality of the person of Christ. Some following the personality of Peter or Cephas. Some following the personality of Paul. Some following the personality of Apollos. 
And Paul at the very end, remember, Paul is one of the ones that they're saying, I'm following his personality. And he says, even that beginning stage, that's not what we're about. We're not about following a personality. We're about avoiding dividing Jesus Christ. We follow Him. And we follow Him alone. Paul told, will tell the, the Philippians later, in Philippians 1 and verse 23, excuse me, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I think any religious person you walked up to today, no matter what religion they're part of, especially if they're of a Christian religion, you would say, do you believe we should be of one spirit? I think there would be a universal yes. I don't think there would be anybody who would say, no, I think we should be bickering all the time. I don't think anybody would say that. I think we'd all say we be one spirit. In this one verse, Philippians 1.27, Paul gives us the way to avoid that bickering, to make sure we are unified, that you are striving side by side, working together with a standard, the one faith of the one gospel. It's not just avoid bickering to avoid bickering. It's having a standard upon which to agree. That's the key to it all. Observation number three. And the most controversial thing probably I'll say. If one follows only the New Testament, he or she will never be a part of a denomination. Let that sink in for a moment. If someone follows only the New Testament, he or she will never be a part of a denomination. That is a controversial statement, I know. And I'm not saying that those who are members of denominations are terrible people. I'm not saying that at all. Each of us know people and love people who are parts of those groups. But there's a certain level of respect for biblical authority that must be there. And if it is there, there will never be a denomination. Now many of our friends, our loved ones, Respect the Bible in certain ways. Some of you are thinking about someone right now, you're thinking, they're a member of the denomination, they read their Bible more than I do. They pray more than I do. They have a more devoted devotional life than I do. But eventually, eventually, there comes a place where it becomes the Bible and. As I said at the outset, I'm not going to name names this morning, that's not my point. But you can think of any denomination whatsoever and eventually it becomes the Bible and the confessional. The Bible and the creed book. The Bible and the manual. The Bible and the words of the priests. The Bible and, the Bible and, the Bible and. Folks, if we would only follow the Bible, we would understand there's no need for an and. All we need is the pages of Scripture that God has given to us. I don't want to be part of a division. And so I simply live and teach and believe the New Testament. When Peter preached on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the people were motivated to ask that great question, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's response in Acts 2 and verse 38 is one of the most quoted verses I guess we have. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness or remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As that chapter, though, ends its conclusion, it tells us the Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved, or those who were being saved. Acts 2 and verse 47. Question. What denomination was He adding them to? He wasn't. 
It didn't exist. He was simply adding them to the same group that heard Peter say, repent and be baptized. And those who did that were added. Those who were added later were added to that same group. I think we can safely say that if we will do what they did, we will become what they were. There was a book written several years ago by men who were members of the Church of Christ, but who began to teach this idea that we're just one among denominations, among many denominations. And I want to read two sentences from that book to you. The first one, I'll admit, is a little bit confusing, but it sets up the second sentence. They said this, There is neither a set of doctrines nor a series of activities that can guarantee the existence of the church. When most of us speak of the church, we speak either of some unrealized ideal that is a mere abstraction or of a deficient institution with which we had personal and possibly frustrating experience. The second sentence is the one most of us, or many of us, and especially many of whom we come in contact with, can understand. When I hear the word the church, or the idea of the church, many people say, that's just frustrating. I I tried the church. I tried that church stuff, and I didn't like it. It was frustrating to me. But did you notice what they said at first? There There is neither a set of doctrines, nor a series of activities that can guarantee the existence of the church. There's one problem with that sentence. And I'll show it to you from the Bible itself. 1 Corinthians is addressed to the church of God which is at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Let me ask, was the church at Corinth begun on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? No, this is years later that it was founded. It's years later that Paul writes this letter. So how did they become known as the church? How did Paul get inspired to write a church to a church that's miles away in a different culture? Well, Acts 18 and verse 8 gives us the answer. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Let me ask, what set of doctrines did they believe? The same ones Peter had preached in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Now Paul was preaching in Corinth a decade or so later, and a decade or so after that he's writing a letter to them in Corinth. There is neither a set of doctrines that can guarantee the existence of the church. Believe, repent, and be baptized, and the Lord will add you to His church. There is absolutely a series of doctrines that guarantees the existence of His church. Any culture, any time, anywhere. And folks, that's what makes it such a beautiful thing. That when people will follow the way of Jesus Christ only, and will make sure that they are doing what He would have them to do, we understand that we are part of that string of believers that goes all the way back to Acts chapter 2. We don't have to wonder about if we're doing what God would have us to do. We simply do what He has already told us. In the New Testament times, in the book of Acts, you often find the church referring to themselves as the way. Because Jesus had said, I am the way. John 14 and verse 6. We understand that if we will simply do what they did, we'll be part of that same way. Think of some contrast with me. I'm going to go through some verses very quickly here. But just listen to these contrasts. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 makes it clear that the church was in the eternal purpose of God. In fact, it was in the eternal purpose of God even before laying the foundations of the world. 
Contrast that with the fact the Bible never tells us once that denominationalism was ever in the eternal purpose of God, but the church was. Daniel chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, and dozens of other passages we could list. Your handout only has those two. There are many others. But many other Old Testament prophecies make it clear that the church was in the mind of God through the prophets for all of those centuries leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. Contrast that with the fact you will never in the Old Testament read of a prophet saying, He's coming to establish a denomination. Acts chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, as we've already discussed, has Jesus promising to build one church, his own church. Contrast that with the fact he never made a promise that he would build denominationalism. Acts 20 and verse 28 tells us that Jesus completed that. In fact, he purchased the church with his own precious blood. You'll never read in the New Testament that Jesus promised denomination or purchased denominationalism with his own blood. The book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and elsewhere tell us that Jesus remains as head over His body, which is the church. But you'll never read that He is the head over any denomination. And the book book of Revelation tells us that Jesus has promised to take His people, the church, home with Him in eternity. Contrast that with this fact. He's never promised to take any denomination home in eternity. Our appeal is not some we're right and you're wrong kind of appeal. It should never be that. Anytime we teach or preach on the matter, sometimes you're just trying to prove you're right and everybody else is wrong. I understand that that's, that's a common pushback against this kind of preaching or this kind of lesson. But listen to me carefully. Our appeal needs to be far more humble. And that is this. God is right. And our first step, my first step, must not be to make sure that other people are right, but to make sure that I'm right. That I'm humbly following His will for my life. And that I make sure that every person has the opportunity to hear that same message. Walk down the street and ask people, how would you describe the Christian world in which we live? I think we'd be scared off by a lot of the answers. But one answer I'm sure we would get if we asked enough people is, it's just confusing. It's just confusing. But yet Christians can sing the old song. There are many paths through this world of sin. But there's only one I shall travel in. Tis the old cross road or the way called straight. There is just one way to the pearly gate. We don't want to avoid denominationalism just because we may not like it. We want to avoid it because Jesus never had it in mind. His prayer to the Father just before going to the cross was very simple. He prayed in John chapter 17 about the followers to come, that they might be one as you, Father, and I are. That they may be one in us. That's the prayer of the Savior of the church. And it's our job each day to live trying to make sure that we are unified as God's people, but that we tell others about the one way that He established through His blood shed on the cross. Are you a part of that way? When asked, what shall we do? Peter, who had been told, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, gave that inspired answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the liberation from your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the same answer we give if someone this morning asks, what shall I do? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Then turn from sin. 
be immersed in water, baptized. You'll be liberated from your sins to go on your way rejoicing. Do you need to do that this morning? Do you need to return in faithfulness this morning to the one way of Jesus Christ? Whatever your need is this morning, will you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?